Well, welcome everybody. We are jumping into week two in a summer series where we're looking at the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's an easy book to find. The first book in the Bible is Genesis, which in Hebrew means beginnings. The second book is Exodus, which means leavings. And it's a story, this epic story, which Hollywood has borrowed multiple times because it's the story of an oppressed people finding freedom, of God reintroducing himself to people who have they thought they were forgotten and how God involves himself in their lives and changes their identity from slave to people of his promises. Um, there will be things in your mind from Charlton Heston to DreamWorks and all those stories are about this. Quick, quick recap. Um, let me show you a map here really quick. This map is a satellite photo of the region of the country that we're talking about. Today, this is a barren area, Egypt. This is the Sinai Peninsula. Over here is Midian. And it is brown, except for this obvious section of green. This is so brown, it is so desolate, it makes Miles City look like a garden. Okay, This is a hostile environment, except for the Nile River, which flows north out of Africa. And as it disperses into this delta... It has brought sediment. And this ends up being one of the more fertile places to raise crops in the whole world. And this is where Egypt gained its power. They were able to feed millions of people. They were able to create great wealth. And this is the ancient Egyptian empire that we think about when you think of pyramids, when you think of these tombs. This is it. And what we read about last week is the descendants of a man named Abram, later turned to Abraham. He was told he'd be the father of a great nation. He was told that God wanted to heal what was broken within all human beings. And God said to Abraham, I want to do that through you. Your descendants will bring about the solution to human pain and suffering. And so they are over in this region, but a severe famine comes. And so they find their way, 70 of them, because of a drought. There's only 70. They find their way here to Egypt. And there, these 11 brothers are reunited with their missing brother that they sold into slavery named Joseph. And here in Egypt, not only did they survive this famine, but they begin to multiply. God is with them. And at the end of a 400-year period, they've gone from being a group of 70, one clan of 70 people, to they number somewhere in the region of 750,000 to 1.2 million. But there's a problem. While they are staying here in Egypt, while they are increasing exponentially, they become a threat to the pharaohs. And the pharaohs think these people are so successful, they are so increasing in number, that if there was an uprising, they could overcome our Egyptian kingdom, so they put them in slavery. And for many of these years that the Hebrews are here in Egypt, they are slaves of Pharaoh. It gets to the point where we read last week in Exodus chapter 1, that Pharaoh says every male Hebrew boy that is born must be murdered. And so they are taking infant boys and throwing them into the Nile River as an offering to the Egyptian gods. This is the setting. So there's a woman, she has a child. She hides him. She can't bear to do what Pharaoh said. 
For three months, she guards him, but Pharaoh's troops are coming. The baby's getting louder. She has nothing to do. So what she does is she builds a basket made of reeds. She lines it with pitch, makes it waterproof, and she puts it at the edge of the Nile River. And by God's providence, a woman finds it who happens to be a daughter of Pharaoh. She looks at this little boy, and because he's circumcised, it's obvious that he's a Hebrew child. She says, I want to raise this child. So they pull him out of the Nile River, and she gives him the name Moses, which means drawn out of the water. So from that point on, his name will be pulled out of the water. She raises him in her own home. He is educated for 40 years as an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. He understands the Egyptian language. He understands the Egyptian pantheon of gods. They have many gods that they worship. But there's a growing tension in him. And that's what we're going to read about. We're going to read about his clash, the difficulty between what he's called to do and the timing within which he'll do that. We're going to talk today about decision making. This passage is really helpful for me because I will tell you this. I do not feel like a good decision maker. Um, I'm earnest. I, I, I pray, God, I want to make a great decision. I want to be right in line with your will. And wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I don't think anybody wants to make a bad decision. Nobody woke up and said, you know what I want to do today? I want to make a tragically stupid decision that will hurt people and cause my life to spiral into chaos. No, you don't do that. We all want to make good decisions, correct? But there are influences involved, and sometimes we don't hear God. And Some of us, we'd say, hey, every decision, I'm always trying to submit it to God. I'm trying to be a part of his will. Maybe you're not even certain how involved God is, but you still want to make a good decision. These points of scripture, as we see Moses collide with his destiny, his premature decisions, the chaos that ensues, God is still going to work. So let's read. We're going to read from three different sections of the scriptures. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And this is just after Moses has been drawn out of the water, raised in Pharaoh's house. And then in the New Testament... So this is about 1,405 years later that we're going to read from the book of Acts and Hebrews that's going to give us a little more commentary on what's happening within Moses. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Let's learn about decisions. Let's learn about God's heart, our destiny, how to find that. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Can you imagine the tension he feels? He has every privilege. He has food. He has freedom. He lives in Pharaoh's household. But he looks out and he sees that Pharaoh's empire is being built upon the backs of his relatives. His sisters, his brothers, his cousins, his parents are working seven days a week. There's a tension there. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Just a quick little pause there. This is human nature. When you and I are thinking about doing something we know is not right, but seems important, when we are being pushed by our emotions rather than our thoughts, this is what you do. You look this way. You look that. And what are we looking for? Look to see, can anybody catch us? If I do this, will anybody notice? Let me give you a little pointer. Look this way. Look that and then look up. <laughs> because God's always watching. That's what Moses is going to find out. It's not about what can I get away with. It's about what's right. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. That was at the far side of that map that was showed across the Sinai Desert where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill their troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, well, this Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Now, we're hoping there was some time that elapsed there. <laughs> Come over for dinner. Here's my daughter Zipporah. Moses end up going to be in Raul, or he's also called Jethro, in his home for 40 years. So there's some time frame. Zipporah, Moses' wife, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, which in uh, his native language meant, I am a foreigner, I am a stranger, saying I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, 40 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Two passages now that we'll read from the book of Acts and Hebrews that help us understand more of what's going on. Acts 7, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. This is the important part. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So this is Philip speaking in the book of Acts. And he says, part of what was happening is Moses had the sense that he was supposed to do something. And he believed that if he stepped forward and, and he initiated deliverance for these one million slaves, that the people would see, oh, Moses, you're there. But instead, they didn't see him in that way. Hebrews chapter 11. Moses, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. The writer of Hebrews says part of what made Moses get through this journey, these next 40 years, is that he saw God at the end of it. He didn't understand what was happening. He had all types of confusion, but he kept his eyes and his faith saying, one day God's going to get me through this. So here we have this great story of Moses, a sense of destiny, the sense of I want to make good decisions, and it collides with an act of passion. Any of us in the room who have experienced that, we know exactly what happens. What do we learn? Here's, here's four things from this passage about your destiny. I firmly believe this. Whether or not you know this, whether or not you know God, 
God has uniquely created everybody in the room. The Latin phrase the church has used for thousands of years is the phrase the imago Dei, the image of God, the imago Dei. He's given you certain abilities, certain characteristics. You're his daughter. You are his son. He has unique plans for your life. It's not plans to be rich and famous, but it's plans to be significant. It's plans to make an impact. And sometimes we feel like we're veering so far from God's intent for our lives. But here, here, here's how we get back on track. Understand this first and foremost, that God's plan will have a what as well as a when. God's plan, his destiny for our life has a what. The what is, I am called to be someone who loves, someone who serves, someone who leads, someone who sacrifices, someone who delivers, someone who fights for justice, someone who cares for the oppressed. Whatever the what is, it's easy to forget that we also have a win. This is an issue of timing. An issue of timing. When is that supposed to happen? Listen, we are impatient people. Moses was impatient. He knew something stirring every day. Can you imagine you wake up in Pharaoh's home, you have everything you need. And you hear the cry of the oppressed people that you're genetically a part of. And you see them laboring to build another pyramid, another temple for Pharaoh. And you realize that you are just like them. And what do I do? And Moses, somewhere along the line, begins to understand, I am called to do something about this. The when is the problem. So what, what does Moses do? He prematurely steps out. When he sees this Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews, he involves himself. And it wasn't God's timing. And he commits an act of murder which causes him to flee. Here's the question we want to ask ourselves when it comes to God's planning, his timing. When? When am I supposed to do this? Because waiting is difficult. Probably more difficult for us in our culture than any group of people of all time. Why? Because we're used to immediate gratification. You can get almost anything you want as quickly as you would want it. We get grouchy when we are at a fast food restaurant and there's four cars ahead of us. It took me six minutes to get lunch. What is going on, right? Nobody likes to wait. I have yet to meet a person who when they go, they go to the store, it's Christmas time, they go to Costco and they're like, which line is longest? Because that's the one I want. <laughs> I love long lines. I love to wait. It's so good for me. I meet people and get to engage and spend more time in this beautiful store. You're crazy if you do that. Right? We're always looking for the shortest line. How can we get through this mo the most quickly? It's because we're not good at the win. I'm not good at the win. And if you're not good at the win, if you've acted prematurely, if you set out, if your passions got the best of you, if you made decisions that that wasn't God's time, what do you do about it? Well, you're in good company. Let me just give you a couple examples from the Bible. Moses' forefather, Abraham. We mentioned that God had made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. And he and his wife, Sarah, they say, okay, God. They had been unable to have children, and now they're getting older. It's been 25 years since God gave them the promise. 
And so they say this, you know what, we should get involved. Because God said that we would have descendants, he said that we would be a great nation. But you and I, they're looking at each other and they're like, you're too old to have kids. And she's like, you're really too old to have kids. So they say, well, let's help God along. So it would have been very customary. This, this wasn't like uh, a, a violation. They had a maidservant named Hagar, and they said, let's have a surrogate child through Hagar. So they do. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to help God in his timing. It's never my job to help God in his timing. This leads to chaos. God still is going to give them a child. His name will be Isaac. But they have Ishmael, they have Isaac. It creates all types of tension within the family. It's created tension in the centuries that have since passed. We get impatient. I, God, I want my destiny now. I, I want that place, that, that thing that I need. I, I want this to happen now. I want that home. I want to get into this business now. And we forget about patiently waiting for God's timing. Here's someone who got it right. King David. King David is approximately 17 years old when this gnarled old prophet by the name of Samuel comes in. And Samuel says, that young man, that's the next king of Israel. And through this beautiful ceremony, he sits David down and he pours oil on David's head. And he proclaims that David will be the king of Israel. Can you imagine a 17-year-old He's, he's got all these older brothers. They're not king. But David says, okay, okay, I'm going to be king. But here's what David understands. He understands that there is a win. So there are 15 years, 15 years between when David is anointed as king and when he actually sits on the throne. 15 long years. And in those 15 years, there is a man who will be king. His name is Saul, and he tries to murder David. He tries to hunt David down. And David refuses to prematurely push God's will. He understands there's a win. And so he patiently waits 15 years after being told he would be king. He actually becomes king. See, your life and my life, there are certain things that we want, we believe, we're asking God for. The win is the hard part. That's the part where I have to trust that's the part where I have to back off and say, God, I would do this much more quickly if I were you. But I am not you. Therefore, I will trust. So God's plan always has a what and always has a when. Secondly, God's plan has a what as well as a how. A what as well as a how. Let me explain what I mean by a how. We always want to ask ourselves, are we doing this the right way? The right way. Moses doesn't do it the right way. If you ever have to violate your conscience, if you ever have to violate your ethics, if you have ever have to violate God's plan, his, his laid out scheme for your life, you know that you're not doing it the right way. So Moses is led. He knows he's supposed to deliver. He's got this burden to see oppressed people free. It's intrinsically in him. So first, he, these two people can't fight, so he kills the Egyptian. Then he sees two Hebrews fighting. He goes, that's not okay. Then he's sitting by a well, and he sees some shepherds abusing a group of seven daughters, and that's not okay. One guy stands up to all the shepherds because intrinsically God has made him a deliverer as part of his destiny. But 
the timing, the timing, and the how, the how. The first time Moses does this, he does it purely from his own strength. God, I'm going to initiate this. I see my people are oppressed. Something has to be done. So God, I am stepping forward, and he violates God's plan. He commits an act of murder. And when we don't understand the how, when we don't trust that there is a way for this to get done, we're in trouble. God, please hear this, God does not need my help. He doesn't want my help. He wants my obedience. And my obedience is typically more difficult to see through. I would rather, anybody just great at helping God, you know, God, something needs to be done about this. I'm stepping forward. I understand. I want to be an initiator, but he needs my obedience. And God's plan was, Moses, I have you in, you in an incubator. I have you being raised in Pharaoh's house. I was with you as your mother protected you. You went from the Nile River into one of the princesses of Egypt's home. You were raised there. You have a place of influence. Wait, but he couldn't wait. He jeopardized the how God's will has a what as well as a how. It's an issue of lordship, this idea of obedience. It's one of the hardest things for me to say, God, I will bow my knee and I will wait for you. Everybody can believe that Jesus is real. The real test is will I submit and will I trust him with the timing and will I trust him that there is an actual right way for this to be done. It's God's will. It has a what, but it also has a how and a when. Thirdly, when you're trying to figure out and decipher God's will for your life, like Moses, expect some confusion along the way. Expect some confusion along the way. So part of God's plan for his life, he understands intrinsically, it's within him. He understands that God has rescued him from the Nile River and put him in Pharaoh's house. But in terms of when, in terms of how, he's confused. He's confused. I would assume that most of us in the room would say, you know, I really want to know God's will for my life but we're a little bit confused. Anybody ever experienced any confusion trying to figure out what God wants from you? Yeah, okay, three of us. The rest of us are liars, right? <laughs> we do, we're confused. And I'm telling you, it's not because you're not earnest. I pray, God, what's, what's your plan? But there's this problem that brings about confusion. There's interference. There's interference. I have this thing in me, you have it in you, and it's your old nature, the Bible calls it, or your flesh. Paul, the apostle Paul says. And it's this old you. It's the part that God is changing and healing, but it's the part that's terribly selfish. It's the part that can just about justify anything. And so I'll be listening for God's will, but then there's this thing in me that says, you know, you should do this now. You deserve this. You deserve it, Nate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that God's voice or me? <laughs> you ask that question all the time, right? It's confusion. Just sometimes like the call gets dropped. You feel like you're just tuned into God. And then, so whenever I drive west on the interstate, 
I don't know if you have the same cell carrier I do, but I'll, I'll call if I've got to go to Bozeman. I always call. I know the fence post where the call will be dropped on the way to Columbus, right? Between here and Columbus, there are two places where you're talking. You're like, oh, no, hurry up. It's going to burn. Oh, gone. Sometimes I feel like that with God. Like, God, what's your will for this church? What's your will for my life? I want to be in alignment. I want to be in harmony with you. And all of a sudden the calls drop and I'm left wondering what. It's because there's this sin nature in me. So here's, here's something I would highly suggest. Always make your plans in pencil. Okay, always make your plans in pencil. Here's what I mean. Is I, I don't want to sit around and just wait. I want to initiate. I want to move forward. But after I've submitted things to God, after we've asked him, write it in pencil, not because you lack faith, but because you are submitted. Because you give God permission. God, I thought this is what you wanted. I moved forward. And obviously, this was not your timing. So I've got an eraser, and I'm going to erase that, and I'm going to wait. I get a little bit nervous um, when people say, God told me this, told me that. And they, like always they're hearing God. And then it seems like God either changes his mind often or is schizophrenic. <laughs> right? There's really three options. If you say this is what God told me to do and it didn't work out, either God changed his mind, he's schizophrenic, or you were wrong. <laughs> Guess which option is correct. Plan, plan in pencil. So that you're saying, God, everything, I'm going to do my best. I'm moving forward. But it's all submitted to you. If you want to change it, that is your prerogative. I am yours. Wherever you want me to go, I'll change it in a flash. So expect some confusion along the way because it is trying. It is difficult. It is confusing to hear God's voice clearly. Here's the last thing, point number four. Even when we miss it, God's plan is not ruined. Okay, even when we miss it, God's plan is not ruined. I wonder if in the 40 years that Moses spent in the desert, get this, working for his father-in-law. Anybody just excited about working for your father-in-law for the next 40 years? Like, that sounds fun. Um, I wonder how many times Moses was in that desert and how many times he just dealt with the deepest regrets. God gave me everything. I was in Pharaoh's home. I had Pharaoh's ear. I, I had influence. And I just lost it one day. In an act of rage, I murdered a man, and now I'm running, and I went from being a prince of Egypt to now I'm just hiding. I am a nomadic sheep and goat herder in the desert who works for his father-in-law. My life, I've thrown everything away. And he must have thought, God, is there any way you can rescue this 40 years of wondering, 40 years of knowing because of your mistake, the people back home are still in prison. They're still being beaten. They're still in captivity. Here's the good news. Even if you miss it, God's plan is not ruined. God is the God of plan B. And thank God for that. Because every one of us in the room have made these selfish decisions that have changed our direction of our lives. And we, we made this decision and it was selfish. And now we're wondering, God, is there a plan B? And guess what? There is always a plan B. And it gets better than that. 
God is a God of plan C, D, E, F, G. God is a plan, he has a plan of X, Y, and Z, okay? God is so patient. He's so patient with Moses. Some of you are saying, but there's nothing after Z. Like I've done way more than 26 bad decisions in my life. His plan continues. He does not give up. You cannot destroy his plan by your acts of rebellion. You might say, oh, but you don't understand the marriages I've been through, the bankruptcies. I've hurt these people, my addictive behavior. I've created chaos in my life. There's no way that I have a destiny. I have forfeited that. I'm just like Moses. I'm wandering in the desert. This is This is not even close to what God wanted for me. Let me tell you this. As long as you have breath, God is still working. He is still moving you towards your destiny. I want to show you one more time that that map, that map, satellite image. So what Moses does when he runs, he leaves, he ends up in Midian. He becomes a nomadic sheep herder. And for 40 years, from what we understand, he takes his sheep through this region And they travel massive distances because it is so barren. You cannot leave your sheep and your goats in one place for long. It will destroy the farm. And so he's a nomad. He wanders. They pick up their tents. They'll have a base camp. Moses would take the animals out. They'd eventually come home. He thinks. Imagine his 79th birthday. What could have been? It could have been, but I had to get angry. I had to kill somebody. What he has no idea of is that in these years, these 40 years of wandering through this desert, when he is 80 years old, God is going to send him back. And in a matter of days, he's going to lead a million people through this same desert. He's been caring for sheep and goats. He knows where every water hole is. He knows where to go when it's hot. He knows where to go when it's cold. He knows where it's safe to camp. And for the next 40 years, he's going to wander with people through the same desert he came to know. He thought it was a throwaway 40 years, but it was all preparation. You may think, The last decade, the last year, the last 20 years, the last months have been throwaways. And I've made decisions that have disqualified me. And I'm just on the backside of the desert filled with regrets. Little do you know that God is still working. He refuses to give up as long as you have breath. He is still moving you towards this destiny, this person that he originally designed you to be. I want to read one final scripture. It's just scripture I love. It's from the book of Jeremiah. Let me give you the setting. Um, Jeremiah is frustrated because the nation that he leads, he's a prophet, and the nation that he leads is filled with political corruption, spiritual corruption. There's warfare. They're being threatened. They've disobeyed God. There's judgment coming. Jeremiah says, like, we've lost it. We have no future. We have no hope. And God tells him this. He goes, Jeremiah, hang on. Before you give up, I want you to, I want you to know this. Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. He says, I want you to go to the local potty, potter, uh, pottery studio, and I am going to give you a message. You're the prophet. I'm going to give you something to say to the people. You go down and watch the potter at work. 
So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. Imagine this in your mind. It's one of those wheels. You move with your feet. It begins to spin. The potter's working with raw clay. But the pot that he was originally shaping the clay from was marred by his hands, meaning he had an incident. It just didn't work out right. It looked like it's coming together as a beautiful pot, but something falls apart. The pot is ruined. So, can we go back, please? So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand. This is what he's saying. He's saying, Jeremiah, you think that what's happened has forfeited your destiny, that you have no hope, that the mistakes that have happened are so tragic and have such implications that you're over. There's no hope. He says, no, no, no. Think of your life like this. You're on the potter's wheel, and sometimes something happens, and the original design, uh-oh, it's just a lump. But God is the God who starts going again, and he will shape and form into whatever he wants. No matter how desperate, no matter how it looks like your, your future has been forfeited, maybe you feel like Moses, I'm too old, that's passed me by. As long as you live, crawl back on the potter's wheel because God is still shaping. He is still forming. He has a destiny. He has a plan. And he hasn't given up, so you had better not give up. He is going to keep working. Will you pray with me? Lord, all of us live in this realm of wanting to make good decisions, of, of wanting to be in harmony with you. And yet we experience this profound interference. It's our old nature. It's our selfishness. And we take shortcuts. And the shortcuts lead us to compromise. We think maybe it's over. It's too late for me. I've been disqualified. Your will, yes, it has a when. It has a how. And even when we fail at that, you continue to work with us. Lord, even while we wander in the backside of the desert, would you be at work? Some of us, I just I have this picture very clearly in my mind. Some of us feel like just a lump of clay, formless, shapeless. We have no purpose. Listen, God is spinning the wheel. And let his hands begin to shape you and form you. Submit. Relinquish control to him. Let him remake you. Let him take what has been marred and destroyed and make something beautiful out of that. Our destinies are yours.